Okay, finally I get to release this episode. This is, in my opinion, the best episode of this podcast so far. I hope we beat it, but right now I think this is the best one. This is a three-way conversation between myself, Alex Benayan, and Kevin Deegan. Alex Benayan, just a little background, uh, was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 list. He, at age 19, was the youngest venture capitalist ever business insider named him one of the most powerful people in finance and he is gearing up to release his much anticipated book the third door the third door is the story of how alex went from a kid in a dorm room to sitting across the table having conversations with bill gates lady gaga warren buffett steven spielberg mark zuckerberg maya angelou to name a few um how Alex got the attention and, and the time of all these people and got to sit down and talk with, with them. So those are sort of Alex's stats, but I met Alex this year, and without knowing all that cool stuff, I sort of fell in love with this guy, and we became really, really good friends really quickly. How'd that happen? Well, um, of the many things we, we share in common, we both meditate, it's a da-da-da, but... One of the main things we bonded on or bonded upon was that both of our fathers died this year. And we talk about our fathers often, how we're dealing with it, share tips, uh, share stories with each other to make the road easier for each other. And Alex said, you know, I need to introduce you to someone who's going to change your life. I have to introduce you to Chaplain Kevin. Kevin is the third member or the third participant of our conversation today, Kevin Deegan, and we call him Chaplain Kevin. (laughs) Um, And Kevin is a hospice chaplain in California. His job is to be with families, be with patients as they transition to death. And he was the hospice chaplain for Alex and Alex's family as Alex's father transitioned to death. And so Alex said, you got to meet this guy. We all had lunch together and he blew me away. Um, And his perspective and wisdom and elegance um, and authenticity um, in these matters is really invaluable. And This, I can honestly say, this podcast, if I could have heard this when I first found out my dad was sick, oh man, it would have, it would have meant everything. So to anyone who has a family member or they themselves is close to death, this, this podcast just is going to be a huge tool for you, um, being able to pick Kevin's brain. And hear Kevin coach Alex and I, having already lost our fathers, how he's helping us deal with our grief. So this podcast really could be for someone close to death, um, a family member, or if you know someone that's close to you, that's close to death, or if you've lost someone after death, how, how we deal with this, how we, how we grieve, what's the right way, is there a right way to grieve, um, this podcast is just going to be invaluable. It's uh, the conversation was invaluable to me. I learned so much from these two 
amazing gentleman. And I'm sure you will too. If none of these circumstances apply to your life, please just bookmark it and you will encounter death. That's part of life. So remember that this tool is there and you can come back and listen to it then or listen to it and sort of remember the lessons. Um, so without further ado, this is Alex Benayan, Chaplain Kevin Deegan on What Does This All Mean? Hello. Alex, will you tell me what you had for breakfast? I can get a level on you. Mike, as you know, I, of course, had an acai bowl. <laughs> and it was delicious. And I had a lemon charcoal ginger drink with it. I feel very clean. And I just, you know, had my afternoon chocolate snack. Great. Chaplain Kevin, kindly tell us what you had for breakfast. This morning, I had an everything bagel with butter and jelly. Strawberry jelly, of course. All other jellies are inferior. Great. Hello. And I had a big cup of nothing for breakfast. Checking the levels. Um, great. We're good to go. We're recording. Uh, just make sure you speak into the microphones. Sometimes people who don't speak in microphones, I see them like gesturing out there. No one can hear you. When so you I do shouldn't that. do. <laughs> <laughs> you can do one-handed large gestures. Alex gestures. We should have maybe got you a mic stand or like a lavalier. <laughs> <laughs> the like a Britney Spears. <laughs> exactly. Matching uh, your color to your clothes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Wait, so, Alex, just say something, something so people know your boy, who Alex is. My name is Alex Benayan. I am the author of a forthcoming book called The Third Door, which chronicles my journey the past seven years tracking down some of the world's most successful people and figuring out when they were just starting how they did it. And it is coming out this spring, which I'm really excited about. Me too. Me too. Chaplain Kevin? I am Kevin Deegan, known by close <laughs> friends <laughs> as Chaplain Kevin. Um, I didn't know you had a last name. I, this I, is my first <laughs> realization. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can call me Kevin. Um, so I am a hospice chaplain with a hospice organization here in Los Angeles. Um, should I say how I know you all? Yeah. So I got to know Alex first um, when his father was on our hospice service uh, at the beginning of this year. And I was the assigned chaplain to his team. And Alex and I uh, had many sessions together while his father was still with us. And uh, over that uh, course of a few uh, sessions, we became um, close and then uh, developed a friendship afterwards. And then that's how I met you, Mike, uh, yeah. through your friendship with Alex. Right. How, how did you get into that work? That's a, that's a good question. Talk right into that mic. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it, it's almost like chaplaincy in many ways, maybe cliche, but it found me in a way. I was um, in my last year of seminary and um, had done an internship in my church or was in the middle of an internship and knew 
um, that I didn't want to work um, in the traditional sense of ministry in, in a church. Um, so I began looking outside of the church um, to do what I felt called to do, which is to meet with the vulnerable, the marginalized mm. um, population in our city. And uh, that's when I came upon a, a chaplain residency in a hospital. Um, I applied for the residency. I, I got it and I did a full uh, year residency with a, uh, a hospital. Um, and in that year of learning to be a how chaplain. How old were you? How old was I? Yeah. This was just two years ago. So I uh, had just turned 30. Wow. Um, so I was there for a year. And then at the end of that um, program, uh, they required for us to do this um, week-long um, uh, education with the um, inpatient palliative care team, which is just a very fancy way of saying uh, a stint with the pain doctor in the hospital. Um, and this doctor uh, has a team of a nurse and a social worker and a chaplain that travels with him. And they go see the most... Um, uh, needy patients, um, both medically, but also spiritually and emotionally, just patients that are really suffering from pain, um, pain physically, spiritually, emotionally, all over across the board. And so I did this just because I was required to do it. Um, but in that week, I really began to see the most vulnerable um, patients who are in the most amount of pain um, and really fell in love with that acute specialized type of chaplaincy. Um, and it was the end of my residency and I talked with the doctor and I was like, I, I really want to do this work. And he put me in touch with the regional director of palliative care. And um, that's how I then um, was referred to the job I'm doing now um, and working full time now as a hospice chaplain going into patients homes, no longer working in a hospital setting, but going into patients homes when they come on our service. Mm. Yeah. So. We the last uh time i talked on this podcast about my father's death this year the the conversation or the monologue rather because mm. it was just me had sort of a uh i figured it out tone to it sure um a like sense of like completed mm. completion like i felt like i was done with grief mm -hmm. And since releasing that, uh, I started realizing uh, <laughs> that is not the case yeah. at all. And um, I mentioned to you a little bit before we were recording mm -hmm. on the phone the other day that I spent, when my father died, I s you know, a week passed and then I went to India and started doing shows and just kind of was doing my life. Sure. And then... It wasn't until uh, I s went on a family vacation with the remaining members of my family, my mother and my sister, and um, my mom accidentally played this voicemail, or trying to check her voicemail at home and played an old voicemail of my, mm. my dad wow. uh, speaking to her. When he was six, he's confused. I heard his voice, and I just lost it, mm. man. And what was it about the voicemail? I think it was the uh, the voicemail coupled with the environment mm. 
So, you know, the reason I said I went back to my life was to distinguish between that and this vacation where it was the three of us and it wasn't the four of us mm. and it wasn't going to be the four of us. Like, dad wasn't right. coming. Right. And I couldn't hide from that fact. Mm. And I think um, I was able to hide from that fact while I'm traveling around the world doing shows because dad right. was never with me right. doing that before. So it just yeah it just mm. came on and like i was i was sobbing mm. in my mom's arms like i can't remember the last time i cried like that it wow. must have been you know at least 10 15 years sure. you know um and it was sort of like wait what what's that all about mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh yeah. i remembered you saying that um grief can you can count on grief to surprise you. That's right. Yeah. If there's one thing that grief is good at, it's uh, surprise. Um, it, it likes to to come when your um, when your walls are down, um, when you're in a comfortable environment, especially when you're in the midst of a celebration of some kind. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure why that is. I haven't done enough enough research or looking into that but that's one common theme that i hear from my families about grief um is it the moments that you are celebrating there's a connection Mm -hmm. to that loss in those moments that you feel um that you've um gotten over your grief in some way or you've you've gotten to a new level of understanding about this loss and grief find its way to come it's very obnoxious. Sure. Yeah. It happened again. That wasn't the last. It happened again um, two weeks ago. Alex, we hung out like the day before, day after when I went to see my mom. My mom was uh, presenting at a conference. She's doing, she's in grad school and um, she wrote like a really great paper and her professor invited her present to present her findings at this conference and so I went to the conference and I'm just sitting next to her and like someone in an, another presentation mentioned like 9-11 and like I felt it all. I was like, oh, here, here mm. it comes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like felt like this impending mm-hmm. tidal wave and yeah. I sort of like was just cry- crying quietly and mm-hmm. like wiping my eyes. Hope <laughs> my mom didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's happened to you as well, Alex, right? Mm. Yeah, it's we like it's when you s- you've had some inconvenient grief grieving periods. It grief is the most inconvenient <laughs> shadow that follows yeah. at least me everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. And there's I remember for my birthday, mm-hmm. you know, I was so excited. It was about four months after my dad had passed, and I was like, "This is going to be a great, you know, great day for me to just." you know, put my grief to the side and just really, you know, be with my friends and be myself again. And no, Mm. I like didn't feel more. I felt more grief on my birthday Mm -hmm. than I did, you know, and maybe the entire month before it combined. Mm. And what I've learned, and it's just this theory, I have no idea if it's true for others, but for me, I realized the moments in my life where I felt the most connected to my dad mm. are the moments where the grief comes the hardest. 
So in my childhood, my dad, he just like loved being like, hey, Alex, it's your birthday. Like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and like my dad was like the best at that. Mm. And I had no idea that like my birthday would be hurting mm. even more than, you know, the month anniversary of his death or because right. I just felt the most I had the most connection with him on those mm. moments you know moments where I'm celebrating or moments where I miss my dad the most because he would celebrate mm. going on a family vacation you would think like you know you're with your mom and your sisters this is a good time to like feel close but you actually feel your dad's emptiness mm. the most so mm. Yeah, sometimes I'm I'm starting to grief is a new friend of mine that I'm just starting to understand mm. his personality. Hmm. Calling uh, grief a friend. That's <laughs> powerful. That's a powerful way to view. He doesn't call me a friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one way it's a one way friendship at this point. Yeah. I almost am tended to rename because sometimes words have this power. Mm. I've I've never told anyone this, but Years ago, in my mind, I came to this realization that death was actually very important and very tied to beauty, mm. and that without death, nothing would be beautiful because we'd have uh, unlimited amounts of it. So, like, for example, like this conversation, it's like I appreciate it on some level because I know there's a finite number of these that mm. we will have together. Hmm. You know, whether that's a hundred or right. five, still, it's a number, right. you know? And without that uh, impermanence, mm -hmm. like, there'd be no reason to appreciate mm -hmm. this moment because right. I could have literally an infinite amount of them. Right. And so I chose to rename death in my mind and I started calling it Hanya because hmm. it didn't mean anything. Like it, it had no, it had no connotation. Sure. It's just like a made up word, mm -hmm. like a sound. Mm -hmm. And like Hanya is a friend. Like death still, like when I hear death, I think like skull right, and crossbones. Yeah. And right. today actually happens to be Halloween. Yeah. But when I hear Hanya, it's like, oh, it's my buddy. Mm. So I was like tempted to rename grief Steven. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen can be a dick sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen needs to learn how to be polite and considerate of her what? schedules. <laughs> what? Like, no. does that, is there, Kevin, is there like, it seems like what Alex and I are experiencing is, n quote, normal, mm. end quote, but is, the, is there a journey to this? Is it mm. moving in a direction? Mm. Yes. Uh, first, to to uh, affirm the fact that you're asking if this is normal, the answer is yes and no. Um, there is no normal way um, to grieve. Certainly, there's an extreme um, when you find yourself stuck in grief. Um, then it's a, it's an opportunity to reach out for help, or if you see somebody mm -hmm. stuck in their grief, to reach in and to um, offer that support, um, even professionally. That's important. Um, um, but but grief is is well first there's the stigma around grief right that um in your ex what you've just shared with us that you you came to this place of um acceptance this place of um acknowledgement that your dad has passed and that there's this new normal in your family 
Um, and then as you gather with your family, you hear that voicemail, you are reminded of this loss or this emptiness, this, this lack of in your family. And that brought about that grief. So the stigma is that that experience of grief or sadness or bawling, this beautiful picture you gave us of you bawling in your mom's arms is bad in some way or, or, or backwards, going backwards. This is what I hear mm. most often from families. I think you've heard that from me. Yeah, yeah. 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 That I was moving along. Everything was okay. And then I, I went backwards, mm. you know, two steps forward, three steps back. I think grief is more cyclical than that. Um, for your benefit being here with me in person, but if the uh, the listeners can imagine much like a roller coaster and families actually describe grief much like a roller coaster. If you think about that loop-de-loop, you actually go up and you're upside down and you come all the way around again. Grief happens to be a lot more like that than, than some linear journey that you're on. And, and the reason why I think that's a better picture of what grief is is because when you're going along and that loop-de-loop is coming and the grief is, is kicking into full gear, you feel like you're going backwards. But sometimes going backwards, especially in the loop-de-loop, is the only way to go forwards, to come all the way around and to experience on a different layer, a different level, those emotions, those feelings. And truly, um, on the journey of acceptance and leading to peace, that layer is necessary to come up and around now, when I was talking about seeking professional help, if to use the imagery, if you find yourself stuck upside down on the roller coaster, um, that's the time to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Um, much like you would if you were actually on a roller coaster and stuck upside down. That's the time to call. Um, what would that look like in yeah. real life, though? Um, like yeah, we're, um, being stuck. Yeah. It, it can be different for anybody, um, but it could look a lot like um, wanting to close yourself off. Um, anything that would be um, seemingly healthy um, is seen as bad or, or, or unhelpful. Um, so like, for example, um, you know, when you're feeling really lonely and you want to just be alone, um, when you're feeling, you're feeling tired and you just, you, you don't go to sleep or um, the opposite where you're just sleeping all the time. So in any signs where the emotion that you're having isn't isn't shifting or moving into some other type of emotion or related to your day as a greater whole. Um, and if it's affecting your relationships, if it's, if it's affecting your eating patterns, your sleeping patterns, um, any of these normal signs, um, is when it becomes not, not normal, but just, uh, necessary to reach out for help. Um, and so being stuck upside down can be where you find yourself, um, uh, punishing yourself in some way, like, um, just looking at photo albums for like days or weeks at a time, mm. because as Alex has said, you know that grief gives a false illusion of connection to the deceased. That if you feel sad enough, that you can feel that connection still present. And I think there's a there's a healthy way to 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 be sad. Certainly, sadness is a is a healthy emotion. Um, but to be stuck in that sadness, to be just sad. Um, and to want to continue to return back to that sadness, almost as a as a way to remain connected to the deceased, I think is is um, is a way of being stuck. is is a sign of being stuck. Um, and um, and just because you're reaching out for professional help doesn't mean that you're stuck. It doesn't mean that your grief is wrong. It's just reaching out to somebody that can help guide you and, and walk along 
um, to use the imagery again, it's much like having a friend next to you when the when the roller coaster upside upside down. It's so you can you can get help even if you're not stuck. Absolutely, and you should you yeah. should. What is so when we say help, does that mean like calling a therapist? Mm. Like what it, what do you actually mean by that? Um, well, the 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 time or the sign to call a therapist can be any time. A therapist can be just a a, a trusted professional um, who has the tools to be able to guide you, lead you, or just come alongside you in, a, in, in your grief. Um, so therapy isn't just for extreme cases. It isn't just for um, the grieving. It can be for any any individual that feels that um, they want guided professional help, somebody who's went to school to help them through this, this difficult time. Um, but I think most of us, um, or many of us, I don't, I don't know the exact number, right? Um, Many of us start with just our, our family unit, uh, siblings, mm. um, as you've stated, you know, your mom um, being there to comfort you, especially those who have been through this journey with us, a sibling who lost um, a parent as well, um, or in your guys' case, a friend who's lost a parent. So we, we reach out first to those folks more readily because we feel like we have this shared experience and um, there's this uh, mutual understanding and respect of, of each other's journey and being on different paths in that journey you don't have to explain as much no no it's just it's shared a shared experience and that feels easier to do um but then you know sometimes it's it is just reaching out to um another friend who didn't have that experience who's never had um lost a loved one it's really just comes down to reaching out to somebody who's able to hold space with you someone who's able to not um not say, oh, you think that's bad? Listen to this story. <laughs> or or someone who says something like, oh, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. You know, it's going to be fine. All of that is uh, unaffirming. Um, you need somebody who's going to sit with you and affirm that your experience um, is not just real, but it's, um, it's, it's hard. People who give you permission to grieve. <sighs> permission is huge. Yeah. Wow. I, do, I did have that, that feeling that I was, even in the words I think I chose at the beginning, that I was hiding from my grief, Mm. you know, for however many months until that vacation by doing my, and I noticed that I had this feeling like I should have been, I should have like faced it head on Mm -hmm. in some way, but I don't even know what that means. Yeah. And so it seems like what you're saying is I'm making up mm-hmm. that there was a right way to do this. Mm. I it sounds to me that you're placing a judgment on having not grieved sooner. Like it, having not sobbed sooner. Right. Yeah. As if sobbing is the right way to grieve. Um so to judge the fact that you put out a podcast to say that you did so well um, th- that that's where you were and there's something to applaud in that and that that is also part of the grieving process mm-hmm. to come to a place where you feel like you're ready to celebrate and ready to rejoice at the fact that you've come to this level of acceptance um, but grief work self-work is about celebrating those points that you're at and then when the journey takes you deeper you're willing to go there and that's where you and I met is when you started going deeper and um, I wouldn't call myself a therapist um, being a chaplain, but 
uh, reaching out to professional help and um, just being a friend to um, to come alongside you and to support you and affirm you in this um, is that part of the journey that you were on when we met. Yeah. So will it, will, it, will we stop being surprised ever? Hmm. Alex? <laughs> like when we're like 50? <laughs> this is, yeah, I have like a question that's like very similar to that. Please. Because it's about the timing. Uh-huh. So, you know, the first month my dad passed, everyone was so accommodating. All I had to say is my dad passed mm. last month. People wouldn't even, you know, I'm very grateful. I'm surrounded by relatively no, not relatively. Really kind people. Yeah. And yeah, people have been super accommodating. I feel that people like judge me a little because it's been like six months now. And sometimes there are days where I just like mm. can't, I can't make that right. meeting or that commitment that I had said I wanted to do. People are like, let's hang out. And I'm just feeling all this grief and I just want to go into my bed and cry. But like when I say, you know, it's about dad, especially people who haven't lost a parent. There's sort of this look of like, how long are you going to play that card? Mm. You know? Yeah. And -hmm. like, I don't blame them. I didn't lose my dad after six months. And my friend kept being like, can't come out tonight. Mm. I'll be like, see, just avoid. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. So I. Yeah. So it sounds like there's not just judgment of self in the process, but there's also this external judgment that you face. Um, Yeah. People don't believe like most people in my life, I guess it's might be a a nice thing that I'm surrounded by people who haven't suffered that much, but they haven't. The majority of people who I interact with on a daily basis have not lost a parent. It's probably just the age. It might be my age too. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's maybe in five years. Even like my grandmother though. She lost her parents when both her parents were in their 90s. Mm-hmm. So when she, her experience of losing her parents is very different than me losing my dad at 24 years old, mm-hmm. especially with all the family That's right. drama that right. surrounded it. Um, so even like my grandma is like, you shouldn't be sleeping this much. Something's wrong. Mm. It's just, it's, di- it's different. Mm. And I feel like, as time goes, you've been, it's been 10 months since you're dead, Mike? Yeah. Uh, what's It's almost 11. Yeah. How many people that you interact with who aren't your, you know, closest friends look at you and go, that's Mike. Let's give him space. It's been 10 months. It's only been 10 months. None of them. None of them, right? <laughs> but you walk around saying, oh, it's, it's, it's been only 10 months. You're right. It, there's, so there's this like, emotional disconnect between Mm -hmm. what we're experiencing every morning when we wake up every morning I wake up and I see a picture of my dad on my nightstand Mm -hmm. and every morning I start my day going Hmm. is that punishment for (laughs) his dad on his nightstand I don't know (laughs) yeah uh no, not yeah, that was punishment. That's just like an acknowledgement of it's tough. There's just this emotional disconnect. Yeah. Everyone who see no one who sees me on a daily basis, other than like my mom and my sisters and you guys, mm-hmm. see me as like that's Alex and he's going through it still. Mm-hmm. One of the things to be said about uh, grief, I think, self work in general. Um, what happens when the traumatic event happens or when the loss happens is that from that moment forth. Um, and maybe even before we start creating 
new patterns of uh, behavior, new patterns of relating, um, shifts happen within our family dynamics. And so what's happening again on the cyclical level, on this roller coaster, um, is that you come around to uh, interacting with people, being part of events, being part of things that are happening that is new because of you being different. And so it feels like you're doing it again for the first time. Mm. And when that happens, you are actually quite literally creating a new pattern, a new way of thinking, a new way of being in this new situation. And so what isn't being acknowledged by um, folks that haven't been through a loss like this is that this is new for you. It's been 10 months, so in their mind, it's not new. But for you in this situation and this place that they've invited you on this day in particular, because of everything that's led up to this moment, this is new. And you have to quite literally figure out cognitively, um, spiritually, emotionally, how you're going to do it. And every holiday, Thanksgiving is going to be, you know, an entirely oh, different thing. Yeah, so, I haven't thought about it. And people are like, oh, Mike, you know, it's been 11 months. Mm-hmm. You, no one's going to be calling you on Thanksgiving saying, hey, Mike, you know, I'm just thinking of you. Right. Well, yeah. now I'm reminding myself I have to call you on Thanksgiving now. <laughs> right. But, you know, pe- I'm making a mental notice. You well. know, after, <laughs> yeah, after yes. three months, sort of like, yeah. unless you're really lucky to have amazing best friends, like after three months, you know, you sort of go back to people treating you normal. Get on but with you, it. You don't yeah. feel normal, you mm-hmm. know. At least for the first year. No. no. And who knows for how long. Yeah. So there is there is that. Um, that everything feels new. Everything feels like you're doing it again for the first time. Having to, you know, like I said, quite literally figure out a way to do it. Um, and carve that. New, you're, you're blazing a trail for yourself of how you're going to do this and interact in these situations. Especially on holidays when people gather. Um, the other thing to be said too is that... Um, while you're doing all of these things for the first time again, you're 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 gathering with family and and dad's not there. There's this loss. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. It you know what I was going to point out is it is not all of the newness is bad. Right. Sometimes there's um, I mean I can think of a, a two things are at the top of like, mm-hmm. well there seems to be this barricade mm. that I had kind of like I want barricades too strong of a word but there seems to be a closeness mm-hmm. with my family now that we're sharing in this mm-hmm. grief even if we're not verbalizing it right. it's like when I feel pain or sadness the first thing I think about is what it's like for my mom to be feeling this feeling mm. and my sister to be feeling this feeling mm-hmm. and so that we share that and it's been a means it's been a bridge between us yeah. you know mm-hmm. so that's not a bad that's a no. beautiful thing yeah. and furthermore when you go into some of these situations again for the mm-hmm. first time right i don't know if i said that correctly <laughs> Sorry. purposely right again for the first time mm-hmm. um to go back to the concept of Hanya, like Mm -hmm. my, my father's death was even before his death, when he was approaching death, it was a reminder to me that my life is not going to last forever. Mm. 
And boy, are we good at pretending like that's not the case. And so some of these moments that, you know, you go back into that are, that's feel new. Some of them I'm appreciating more. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what I was with, this has been the big one for me. It's like, since that sobbing day, Mm -hmm. I think a lot about losing my mom Mm. because that's going to happen. Well, either that's going to happen or she loses me. Mm -hmm. So in all likelihood, there'll be a time where my mother uh, transitions or passes away or her body dies. And... That's like that's not so much in the background anymore mm. as it was before, you know. So I'm not I'm not as able to take her for granted as I was before. Mm. Like again, there's like a certain number of times I get to see mom, mm. you know. And that was always the case, but mm-hmm. I didn't think about that before. Now I think about that. And I saw my sister last weekend and i thought about her too it's like these are these magical precious beings that i get only so like divine like being and they're alive now mm-hmm. like my dad is not alive he's like maybe he's in some other form now mm-hmm. who knows but his body like if i could see it the eyes on his body they would like there would be no life in them mm-hmm. but my mom and my they still have that for now right and it's up to me to enjoy that That's while Hanya. I can. That's Hanya. Mm. That's Hanya. It's like that the the light reflecting off their eyes mm. when mm-hmm. I when I look into them that they they're still living. Yeah. And appreciating that is is a a, a real gift mm-hmm. I think that I've gotten from my father's yeah. death. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that turns into real fear. Like I'm scared of my mom dying mm-hmm, too, mm-hmm. you know? So it's kind of a, yeah, can be a double edged sword. That's right. I think that's very well said, um, about that. Although, uh, grief is this annoying friend, grief brings with it gifts, um, that extends to us that we get to open. Um, so does Hanya death uh, brings us these gifts, um, although annoying or uh, frustrating or th- a great sense of loss when when death does come, there are these gifts that we are given. Um, mm. And one of them um, surely is this gift of gratitude. Uh, going back to what you said originally about uh, the awareness of the temporal time, like that our time is limited, that can bring about this great awareness of gratitude that so grateful to be able to sit here with you all and have these deep um, conversations we've done this before not recorded so i'm so grateful when we gather to talk about these deep things that uh, most guys don't sit around and talk about um and the the double-edged sword as you were mentioning about um of this gift of gratitude is that we have to fight off a mindset of scarcity that yeah how do i couple that with gratitude for the moment but also knowing like, ah, oh, it's yeah. going to end. Oh yeah. my gosh. I, I've, I've done uh, some research into gratitude because uh, I think it's a powerful tool that we have. 
at our disposal um, in our grief work, but just work in general. There's so many scientific benefits of gratitude in general. I can share those things with you guys at another time. But the thing about gratitude, and you talk about how, how can you remain gra- grateful? How can you re- have a practice of gratitude? Or some folks even say an attitude of gratitude. Um, gratitude begets gratitude. So if you want to have a practice of gratitude, you need to practice gratitude, right? <laughs> it's this catch-22 of the only way to have it is to start and to start practicing it. And it's by recognizing first um, what you do have rather than seeing what you don't. Mm. And a mindset of scarcity says, I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I'll never have enough. I'll never be enough this connection between what we have and what we are. And it's this mindset that takes over our body. And as I was talking about the scientific benefits of, of gratitude, there are these negative uh, scientific um, effects of, of ingratitude or this mindset of scarcity. And so when whenever we begin to have those feelings of I'm not enough, and even in our culture, this is pervasive, this idea of we don't have enough, we'll never be enough, um, to stop and to be mindful um, about what you do have. And I think time is, is, is one of those things that we most often take for granted or most often are trying to push up against, rushing against the clock, um, or, you know, rushing in traffic is taking too long. You're rushing, 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 rushing. Just the moment to stop and to pause. I know um, each of you, all of us have this practice of mindfulness or a meditation to stop and to, to breathe and to get connected with the body again. That's a way of beginning the process of gratitude becoming mindful and aware of what you do have, even if it's just a breath, even if it's just a moment. I fully agree with you. And I find myself, especially the past couple weeks, getting mad at myself mm. because these emo- I'm starting to feel out of nowhere these emotions of like, and not really out of nowhere, but a lot of anger and almost like, and this is an injustice all, you know, not only my dad's passing, but all the circumstances that surround my dad's passing and the aftermath of my dad's passing. And I'm angry that these things happened. And then I go, like I hear Chaplain Kevin, my head saying, you know, practice gratitude. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then I'm like, uh, and then I suppress my anger right. and then I wake up with my back in pain mm-hmm. and then I wonder why my back hurts. Right. And then, you know, I can't eat the next day and I wonder why I can't eat. And then, you know, I'm, I'm a, walking body full of shit like yeah. <laughs> it's not working <laughs> i don't even have a question i just needed to, to bet that yeah it, how yeah. do we look i know in my head you know yeah. you can it coexists you right. know your anger and your gratitude can coexist but it, it really i i can't do it right i'm either angry and pissed at so-and-so mm-hmm. or i'm grateful that mm-hmm. What I at least have exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not good at doing this like multi balancing, yeah. creating space for multiple emotions. Right. So I end up suppressing the anger. Right. And then I end up the suppressed anger gets crusty and ugly and comes out in not good ways. Mm. Except when we box. Oh my God. When, when we box. When this guy boxes. <laughs> all the anger comes They're like up. Alex two more. And I'm like, ha! Ah! He throws these punches and he goes, ha! <laughs> There you go. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Mike, Mike's that's like huge. used to seeing me like, you know, meditate on the river. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's like, you want to go boxing? I'm like, I don't know, Mike. He's like, come on. And I'm like, 
okay. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> he rips his shirt off yeah. and he walks in. <laughs> I think you're holding intention very well, the anger and the, the stillness. Yeah, and I'm, af- I'm afraid of anger. Yeah. You know, anger Say more about that. Why are you afraid of anger? Yeah, and it, I guess it goes obviously back to my childhood of anger. Anger's the enemy. Anger's what, you know. Is it? it in, in my house, it was. Mm. Because anger wasn't a constructive force yeah. that led to, you know, Gandhi was angry and look at what he did with his anger. You know, yeah. Martin Luther King was furious and look yeah. at what he did with his anger. That's right. But when I was a kid, anger led to yelling and slamming doors and right. mean words and making people cry. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's I didn't even so, realize that. But yeah, in, in my childhood, what you were in my about, childhood, I mean, my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> up until right thirty seconds ago. Yeah, I, I, I same for me. Yeah. Say more about that, Mike. In my home, same thing. Like you got angry. the The examples he used are like spot on. Slam doors, making people cry, mm-hmm. making people yell, making other people angry. Right. Um, and I that really also resonated with me when you said, when you say childhood, you mean your whole life. <laughs> I Be- mean, because mm, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it. It still feels like yeah. If I have that feeling i need to transform it Mm. or like put it away or like let it right leave it there and maybe it'll be less powerful later Mm -hmm. maybe i need to rename it um so just to speak to that um anger and let me be honest that in my household too anger is attributed to you being bad you've done something wrong and you are bad and you, so you deserve someone's angry at you when someone is angry uh-huh. we are taught i think especially as boys when dad is mad we are bad um and what that is telling us and teaching us on one of two levels is is on two extremes actually that we need to get mad when something bad happens and we need to call out someone when they're bad mm. and as adults we become angry men that continue this cycle of pain um and and on the other extreme, it's this internalized, and I think this is where you and I, you, us three fit more closely into, is that we internalize that badness and we feel that we are innately bad because we got somebody mad. And we, I will speak for myself, but I think you, I can get an amen out of this. Um, we do everything we can as adults not to make anybody mad because we don't want to be bad. Amen. Yep. Okay. So the problem is with that though, is that we've learned that anger is related to us being bad. What we need to learn instead is that when somebody's getting angry in that way, like my father, um, like maybe your fathers have done, it's because it's coming from for them from a place of pain rather than from a place of peace. I think Gandhi and MLK are excellent examples of anger coming from a place of peace when anger's intent is to bring about peace in a person in a community in the world that anger is constructive when anger is coming from a place of pain because of probably their father and then that person's father's father right Mm. there's this continuation of this pain cycle that's being passed on and taught passed on and taught 
and then they're creating pain not just in their child but in their community in their in their friends and living and existing in this pain anger cycle the only way to break out of that is to find where it is that our anger can be constructive and shift our intent of our anger away from pain into peace when we get angry it's probably a red flag that there's pain there and so it's a moment to stop and to become mindful about what triggered that and it probably didn't happen in that moment it was probably building Um, and what is it triggering and telling us about our childhood what is it telling us about um last year, last month, last week, yesterday. What is it telling us? And when we become mindful about those patterns of pain that we're having and how it's resulting in anger, we can shift then and realize and acknowledge that maybe we're getting angry because something that happened is wrong and we want to change it. What if we can't change it? Can't change what? Say more about that. What if you're angry at a circumstance that you know, is out of your hands. Mm. And I agree with you. My anger is the result of deep, deep, deep pain that feels unsolvable. Mm. So I'm angry that that pain exists. Mm. It sounds like um, what you're talking about is another person that you can't change. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's where it is that... um, Peace becomes something that we just have to accept, um, where we realize that we can't change them, but we can change us. And if we find ourselves getting into patterns of of pain with these people where we're being triggered, whether they're reacting or not, uh, boundaries become ever more important. That um, I'm not saying to cut the relationship off, off, but maybe in some cases that is the case. Uh, where we find ourselves in a pain cycle with somebody but they do something, then we feel this way. So we say this thing and then they feel this way. So then they do this thing and then we feel this way. And then it's a cycle that um, continues. And to only break out of that cycle is just to acknowledge how you're feeling, uh, to state that very clearly. And you can say even, you know, I'm feeling this way. What I normally do is this, but what I can do instead is this. Um, And so, it sounds like to me what you're describing is being in a relationship with somebody who is causing you pain and you want to change the situation and what needs to change is that person. But you don't don't have that power. You don't have that power. You have the power of permission to give them permission. um, And you can do that by drawing the boundaries strong um, in this, in in the sand um, just to say, you know, this is where I'm at. The door is open for us to continue in a relationship. I would have to know more about the relationship specifically, but in, in a general way to draw the sand, the line in the sand and just be like, I'm not closing off the relationship, but I'm, I'm wanting to have peace about this and I'm, I'm in my pain. And so I'm drawing the line because it's, it's for the health, my own health, but the health of our, our relationship. Something that I'm curious for both of you, Mike, on a personal level of what exi- what happened with you mm-hmm. and Chaplain Kevin on, you know, what's fascinating about you is you have, you know, dozens, hundreds, I don't know, maybe even thousands of just case studies that you've seen so you can see patterns. I'm curious about, and it isn't talked that much in these books on grief and grieving and the aftershocks. You know, when someone passes away, especially a parent who's the center of a family structure, 
there's like, you know, platonic shifts in the entire surrounding family structure. So maybe we can start with Mike of if you've noticed a shift, if you haven't, because things change all around. And how you deal with that. It's been coupled with a lot of my dad's transition has been coupled with a lot of change in me and those things aren't they're correlated and maybe one caused the other um so i've really kind of uh really been looking at myself this year and you know as you know like doing like a landmark form like i've been spending like a week in solitude and these things so um, those were aftershocks for me. I mean, and we t I touched on a little bit, which was like, you know, realizing, having to look my own mortality in the face and then deciding, well, there's this list of things that I've been meaning to do. I should probably start doing those now. So I started doing them and some of them have been transforming. As far as like the, the um, structure, like for lack of a better term, like the well, how we relate to each other in my family now. Um, I love my mom and my sister more now, for sure. Wow. Um, to the point where my mother actually looks more beautiful to me. Like, I'm sure she looks the same. I'm with you on that one, yeah. But when the way I see her, she looks like more beautiful more gorgeous like more alive like more reverent um that's so crazy same experience with me yeah. and my family yeah, yeah like sh like she yeah it looks like a different person sometimes like i never saw her that way mm. um there have been times where i wanted to recreate like my mom and i think we had like sort of a breakthrough we're closer now we talk more often and i wanted my relationship with my sister to be exactly the same and my sister is incredible. She works very hard in New Orleans as an attorney um, on like very um, important cases that are good for society, like uh, fighting bad things that are <laughs> happening. Uh, she's a good lawyer um, and she works really hard and she's really busy. Um, so sometimes, like, I would call and she'd say she'd call me back and she w she'd forget or she, like, wouldn't have time. And I'd notice myself making that mean something. She didn't call me back because she's not, like, she's stretching herself too thin or she hasn't, she hasn't reached the same level of realization I have or, like, she doesn't care about me as much as I care about her. When in reality, like, all it means that my sister didn't call me back is that she didn't call me back. Mm. There's no, like, other meaning to it. Mm. Um, you know, simultaneously, my sister always, we talk about, like, people say I love you in different ways or I miss you in different ways. Like, she would always, she'd, like, invite me to come visit her in New Orleans. And she had been, like, even since before my dad died, and I never went. You know, I never went. And so finally this weekend I went, you know, and like that was her way. Like, just come, come here. And like, we had this great weekend together. Um, hmm. And it feels like, 
even if we don't talk every week or every two weeks, like having spent time with her, like I, I feel like she's, she's kind of like my co-pilot. Yeah. It's yeah. cool. It's cool. to have this, this person that yeah. has like all my same like DNA and yeah. we're like, we're going through this thing. Which you didn't have that relationship before your dad passed. We, d- we yeah. did at, at times, at, you know. Um, but the shared experience brought you together. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. So that, and, and then, like, when the three of us that are together, it's a different dynamic. So I have, like, my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my sister. But when it's all three of us, it's, d- it's a different thing. And it's always been like that in my family. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like that in, yeah. in your guys' family, but, like, yeah, I always had like pretty good relationships with everyone one on one, and then sometimes the four of us together we would just blow up, and it'd be this huge atomic <laughs> bomb, and like no one could get along yeah. with each other, and like each each individual relationship would just like fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> That's family. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when when we're they they have a tough time with each other, they'll. F- They'll like have words for it. They're like hard on each other. Mm. <laughs> my mom and my sister. So mm. um I don't know, when we're together now, I'm like I find myself even like when when on that family vacation where I sobbed, you know, there was just simple things that my dad used to do. Mm. Like he w- used to go to get fish from this market called Carlson's and my mom and my sister were like, all right, you're going to do that now, Michael. Wow. And and so. How did that feel? Because that was your dad's thing. That was the first. I cried. Mm. I didn't sob. I sobbed like the next day. But that was like a little. Yeah. I got a hit mm-hmm. that day. New patterns. New patterns. And, mm. you know, I just, um, I never thought I really had anything in common with my dad mm. I thought he was always so content I remember when I f- met, got like my first check and I was at home like we ha- so one of our cousins was getting married and I forgot a tie or a belt or like something like that so my dad went with me to the mall to get a tie or a belt whatever it was and they had these overpriced Ugg slippers there and I thought, like, you know what? Got my first check. I'm going to buy my dad these slippers. And I said, Dad, I'm going to buy you these. And he looked at me so confused. He was, <laughs> like, he was like, I have slippers. Yeah. I was like, but these ones are Uggs. And I'm going to buy them. Mm. So they're different. But he was just like, but I have slippers. But I was like, but these ones are better. He's like, but I have slippers. <laughs> <laughs> and to him like that's he had everything he wanted mm. and he used to he used to think that was sort of i think that scared him mm. when he was he was retiring mm. and he's like there's nothing that i'm really like working mm. toward like i have mm. i have your mother and like mm. like i'm kind of good Mm-hmm. So he would just kind of like sit on the porch mm. and he would eat his food, he'd eat his junk food, he'd read his paper and like he would just chill. Mm. And I never could identify with that. Mm. I, w- I always wanted to like take over the whole world. Yeah. And one of the things I'm noticing.
interesting, especially I'm in a relationship with a woman now, mm. which is um, I haven't spent a lot of time in a relationship before, romantic, intimate ones. So a- as I um, walk that path, there's this like so much of my dad just mm. like coming out of me. Mm. And do you I get scared or do you I like it? I can't control it. Yeah, like I see these videos. Like my dad, when he walked down a hallway, he would always like touch the walls. He'd like sort of knock the walls. And like my partner some of these videos and I'm like touching the walls. <laughs> and like, yeah, it's just a, it's a, tr- the, the one that was really a trip and this, this resonate. I'm glad I'm getting back to this. Um, was when you were talking about being stuck upside down mm. i'm thinking about when my d- dad first died even before he mm-hmm. died i had some abnormal eating going on mm-hmm. i was i was losing weight mm. and i was trying to lose weight it was something i decided i was going to do before i did it mm. um and i had all these reasons about how it would help the authenticity of my next album and that the next project I was making was more vulnerable, so I shouldn't be this big muscular guy like on mm. the stage singing it. And when people would ask me about why I was losing weight, I would like have a very thought out, logical answer, mm. and they'd usually like, "Oh, that, that makes sense." Mm. Um, but when I think back on it, there were weeks where I was eating literally eating every other day. Mm. So I'd eat, and not a lot when I ate. Like, I was measuring out the calories, and then the next day I would eat absolutely nothing. Mm. Water and coffee. And the next day I'd eat, and I was like doing this, and I lost, like, a ton of... I was like really skinny. Mm. And um, another thing I left out of this story was growing up, my father was always overweight. Mm. I mean, the whole time I knew him, he was mm. overweight. And I think bef- he wasn't... Before I was born, he mm. was not overweight mm-hmm. um, but in my life he was overweight and it bothered me when I was a kid it bothered me and so mm-hmm. it seemed like when I look back on it it's like I made this decision like I'll never be overweight mm. but I went too far like now I'm like getting teetering on being underweight obviously like some very unhealthy eating mm-hmm. patterns going on and my father passed away, and I was sitting at his funeral, and his best friend, Margie, is giving his eulogy. And she's telling the story of w- my dad before I was born. Hmm. And he, she's talking about how he would do these wild diets. And he'd go a whole day where he wouldn't eat, <laughs> and the next day he would. <laughs> and oh. I'm sitting in the chair, and in the funeral and I'm thinking like I embarked on this like ridiculous journey of not eating to never be fat Mm -hmm. like dad and all the while I was being exactly like that like when he was my age he was doing that Mm -hmm. I just (laughs) didn't know that's right so yeah yeah I see a lot and and my sister too like when we're walking around I just see like his posture in her and like Mm. the little sayings we have of what he used to say Mm -hmm. um the more we try to be the opposite uh, of our parents, um, yeah. in this case, dad, um, the w- more we become like them. Yeah. Yeah. Was that all the answer to like how my family 
That's is a great answer. You're so vulnerable, yeah. That's the lay of the land of where you've been the past 10 months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, side note, but I want to thank you both because I think on this podcast I have the tendency of going, navigating an experience, mm. reaching some sort of insight, and then talking about it from mm. the, like, mountain of wisdom, right. mm-hmm. talking down from the mountain sure. of wisdom. And this is a really... um I think a valley conversation. Yeah. Valley convert, you know, or just like on the trail conversation sure. at least. Sure. Um, I- a good opportunity because mm. a lot of times when I'm in the middle, of it, I don't know how to talk about it. Right. So I want to thank you guys for letting me yeah, be on the trail. Thank yeah. you, man. Yeah. yeah. A pleasure. Wait, so then what was the second part that you had for Kevin? I'm curious what Kevin you've seen over all the patients that you've seen, how mm. families splinter, come together, are there mm. patterns that you've seen? Mm. Is there is there a pattern? Is is it a kaleidoscope that every family is different? Right. W- what do the, the 12 months look like? The changing family dynamics is right. my question. Well, one thing that is um, common or for sure going to happen is that a shift does happen when you talk about the plate tectonics the shift that happens um, there is this event or unfolding event that's happening that um, causes new patterns to erupt or disrupt the normal patterns of dynamics and families even if it's just quite literally the scheduling like who's going to take care of dad today who's going to be with dad so like scheduling gets changes but then also these relationships are shifting and changing so change is the common denominator between all the relationships. Um, One way that I talk about it um, with my families and sort of affirming this shift that happens in families, especially like, um, Mike, what you're describing, that you feel closer to your family because of this experience. Um, There's this bridge that's being built in this time. The, The way that I describe it is there's this event that's unfolding for this family or an event that has happened if somebody had just passed that is much like an invitation for reconciliation, for greater and deeper connection. But it's an invitation that gets sent out, but you don't have to RSVP, or you don't have to, you can RSVP and say you're not coming. Mm. And so these events, these traumatic events, or these shifts that happen in our families is purely just an invitation to go deeper. Some of the people who are invited will go deeper and will join in that. Others will choose not to. Some don't even respond to the invitation. Some don't even respond. Um, some, you know, plus one. They say, you know, me and my new partner, girlfriend, mm-hmm. so-and-so is going to be with me. And she's just coming to the family now. You haven't met her. But um, I'm thinking of one couple in particular. They just got married and had never met um, the father who had passed and hadn't met the family and this was the introduction through this time so there's this shift that was happening um, for him personally but then in their family and this was their introduction and an invitation for new connection and reconciliation um, for old connections so one thing that I know for sure is that there's this invitation that goes out um, and we as individuals get to choose if we're going to participate in that deeper connection and that and that reconciliation now we may not go um, super 
as deep as we want to go or super deep into like the old patterns of, you know, structures of our relationships and hash out everything that's ever happened to us or that time that mom said this thing when mm-hmm. I was seven, you know, like I've never let it go. Like we may not go that deep, but it may just be, as you've stated, a bridge, an invitation to show up. And that's where the beginning of reconciliation, forgiveness and love um, begins again. Um, one other thing I wanted to, that I've been holding in my, in my mind as you were talking, Alex, um, about um, holding in tension, and, you know, anger and this uh, peace. Um, we talk often about this mentality of life being, um, you know, glass half full, half empty. Um, if I had to guess, you're a half full uh, type, type guy, right? What, what would you say that you are, Mike? Half empty, half full? Half full. Half full? Yeah, I, I but think... But I'm not perpetually there. Right. Oh, yeah. Me, ne- me neither. Most of the time. Right. But yeah, on average. On average. Half full. Typically, when you wake up in the morning, the glass is half full. Um, and that's, that's my, my... That's sort of my mindset as well, half full. But we have to recognize there's many people who are not. They're half empty. But I think what both of us on both sides of, of viewing the cup um, are missing is that there is both this fullness and this emptiness in the cup. And that tension of being able to recognize that both the glass is half full, but also lacking or having this emptiness, that tension line is where we um, should place our focus. Life should never just be half full. And it never is. Our circumstances, the loss that we experience, the difficulties, the struggles that we have, it's never just half full, nor is it or should be just half empty. It's that tension between I have enough, my glass is half full, but I also have this loss. I also have this emptiness. When we can get comfortable with the loss and also the fullness and not go into extremes of one or the other, I think is when we're getting closer to being comfortable with that reality, that life is both half full half empty yeah i'm reminded of when this isn't totally related to that point but something you said earlier that really resonated with me which um when when dad is mad i'm bad Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this feeling of there being an underlying sense of unworthiness Mm -hmm. and that I need to justify Mm -hmm. my life. Mm -hmm. And then I I don't know if they're tied. This may be a totally separate point or maybe they are totally tied. Um, This real like fear of anyone being upset with me and simultaneously like always having to make sure everyone's mm-hmm. happy with me. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of respects, like th- I feel like that's how I ended up with the job that I have. Mm-hmm. It's like getting the max amount of people to tell me I'm great mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And it can be, it sounds like, you know, a cute little thing, but it can be really destructive yeah. when some person you don't really know seems to be upset with you and then like I or I'll put him in my terms like some person I don't really know is upset with me like and I have to do everything Mm. you're obsessed 
I'm obsessed with reversing that to the point where I'm neglecting right. the things I actually care about, right. like my family mm -hmm. or my love or my work, mm -hmm. all to make sure like Joe Schmo, who mm -hmm. like I just met, mm -hmm. isn't upset with me. Because it's connected to your worthiness. Is that what it is? You're working for your worthiness. You're hustling for it. Um, I, there is somebody much wiser than me that has talked about this extensively, Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. um, shout out to Brene. What up, Doe? Uh, um, she has. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you just did what up, Doe, to Brene Brown. What Brene, up, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. <laughs> may, may appreciate that. What up, Doe? Uh, <laughs> Oprah, what up, Doe? Yeah. What up, Doe is uh, like a Detroit colloquialism. Okay, cool. In Detroit, I don't know why, but people don't usually just say what up. They say what up, Doe. There you go. Now you know. Now I know. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> next week on Detroit Fun Facts. <laughs> 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 next week on Detroit Colloquialism. Yes. Next on Sounds of Detroit. <laughs> what up, though? Okay, episode. yeah, as you were saying, you were <laughs> saying uh, Brene Brown. Uh, uh, yeah, so wisdom. shout out to Brene. Um, she writes extensively on this idea of hustling for your worthiness. Um, and about uh, the, the book that she talks most about this. All of her work is, is related to this, but Gifts of Imperfection, embracing these um, guideposts of imperfection rather than our worthiness being attached to somebody else's idea or, or view of us, um, really just coming to a place of um, worthiness ourself. And I do not have the time to get into how beautiful and how wonderful and how impactful her work has been for me personally. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot of the foundational work that I use with patients, but in my own personal life, um, I, I personally struggle with worthiness and wanting, um, even in this podcast, to just sort of name it, wanting to sound smart, wanting to sound oh, yeah. um, like I'm, I know what I'm talking about or I'm educated or I'm, I'm good. All of that is because I want you to like me and I want you to... Um, not just like me, but accept me and, and affirm that I'm okay. But Brene talks in the very first sentence, and I actually talk about bawling crying. When I first read her book, I was sitting on a plane heading home uh, where I grew up and uh, knowing I was going to encounter my family, which can be sometimes a challenge for me. And I read this first line, and it was, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something about how you are already enough. The, one of the first lines of the book, and I just started bawling my eyes out. I am already enough. And it's not tied to having hustled, having earned approval, having um, performed to please somebody. I am already enough. And that idea is something that I always try to go back to when I find myself hustling, when I find myself trying to earn approval, mm. trying to perform or to please um, as it's related to my worthiness. I think there's a healthy way to perform. There's a healthy way to, to please folks, to serve them, but there's also a very unhealthy way to do it. Yeah, because I think that's the, that's the, the thing that, let me, let me rephrase, that I, what gets in the way of what other, I suspect other people fully adopting that idea and I suspect that because it gets mm. me fully adopting idea, that idea is that if I if I really accept that I'm enough, that I'm gonna turn into like this lazy bum mm. who doesn't do anything. So right. I'm like almost scared to do so. Right. And 
when I ta- when I talk about you know this feeling of underlying unworthiness, people will say, well, well, that's what drives you, Mm-mm. and that's what made you who you are. Mm. And mm. I hope that's not the case. Like right. I hope I can like right. go of Th- think about it this way: all of the energy that goes towards. Um, think about it in terms of like emotional cash, all the money you spend relationally speaking to earn somebody's approval, um, not just doing the task, but that the person's going to like the task you did and like you because of the task that you did and make sure that they like it the way that you want them to like it. And you're spending all this cash, all this time, all this energy, all this, everything you have on this one thing. Imagine if you save that cash and instead and just invest it into what you're passionate about. If you shift it away from, again, going back to that place of pain, that you're coming out of a place of pain, wanting to fill up that worthiness, mm-hmm. wanting to fill up and instead shifted towards, I'm just going to focus on this because I'm already enough. I don't have to hustle for it. I'm just going to focus all my energy on doing the best job I can. That shift is so powerful. And it again comes from a place of peace because if you're already enough, you're not lazy anymore. You've already done everything you want people to think about you. You've already, you're, you're already that at your baseline. So how much more can you do because of that place of peace that you're coming from rather than working from a deficit, right? De- deficit. 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 Yeah. Let me yeah. say that properly. De- <laughs> Speaking of wanting to be able to think I'm smart. Uh, <laughs> deficit. Coming from a deficit. You're always trying to hustle to try to earn to become worthy. If you're already worthy, all of the work you do is just adding on to what you're becoming rather than what you're trying to convince people mm. that you are. I needed to hear that. Would it change the quality of, oh, I feel like, so, like I said, like when I just like quit making music? <laughs> I think... Go ahead. No, I mean, I think that that's the question you have to ask yourself. If you came to a place where you thought the work that I'm doing is enough, would you stop doing it? And the question, is it meaningful enough to you? Is it is it still part of your essence, mm. part of who you are, that the music that flows out of you is speaking about who you are mm. and about who you're becoming and what's unfolding for you rather than doing it to prove that you are something? And my guess would be because I've I know your music um, and I know you personally that it's coming from such a real and such a vulnerable true place for you that if you if you're able to shift to a, a place of worthiness and I, I mean just first before I finish that thought just to say like I don't think you ever get to a place of like feeling completely worthy 100% where you walk into every room and you feel like I'm already enough you don't no never I I, I think I'm it's a constant fight even as i walked to sit here with you all i had to sort of just ponder and to think and to pause and to reflect on that you know what whatever's going to happen i'm just going to i'm just going to do be myself i'm just going to do my yeah. best if i sound like an idiot then you know maybe there's parts of me that are idiotic do not sound like an idiot right but like but but <laughs> that's so you know. but that's the except thing except when you said deficit deficit well yeah. uh, what so, you guys don't know is yeah. deficit is actually another detroit <laughs> <laughs> which means what what, what no is one it used? Sa- well it means deficit but yeah. no one says Deficit. They sure. say deficit. Yeah. There you go. So I mean, like, but if <laughs> if I came if I came here today to sort of like try to come to show you that I'm already enough, my work would be inherently different because I'd be trying to reach, trying to push, trying to earn, trying to mm. something rather than remaining mindful, listening, being present, and holding space with you. 
the, the true tragedy of unworthiness and hustling is not that it's exhausting. It's that you're not present. Mm, yeah. You're not yeah. able to sit and hold space with somebody because what worthiness requires is for me to put every anxiety I have about myself wow. and focus yeah. on you. You're not focusing on your love and your art. Right. The things and, that and matter. And the way you want to help people. You're focusing on, I'm not enough. How do I become enough? I'm not enough. How do I become enough? And you're, you're yeah. self-centered. Wow. So much energy goes into that. So much. Tons. And, uh, if, and like if, 80%. And, a lot, a lot of that <laughs> and sometimes more. Uh, yeah. It, it's it becomes, all... Be hey, like we were talking about... <laughs> such a funny example last time alex and i hung out i went to the bathroom we were going out the door and i said i have to go to the bathroom i'm really nervous where this is going no but it's okay. about me don't worry about it and i i i urinated oh yeah yeah and yeah. i finished urinating i was washing my hands i said you know what alex i'm only washing my hands right now because you're here because you're here yeah. i never wash after peas i only wash after poops <laughs> oh my <And> gosh <laughs> I'm putting <laughs> please, it's a please. funny example, but I literally, if I'm alone, I never wash after a pee ever. Yeah. When, when Only when other people, but, but this is the thing. Like if I'm in the airport and I take a piss and I go like, I'm walking by the sinks and people are like looking at me, I wash my hands. <laughs> so you want to like look good for these guys who I will never yes. see again in my entire yeah. life. Yeah. You know? Um, I'm sure that I'm sure I probably should be washing my hands. Yeah, here's a here's a PSA for the medical world. Please wash your hands <laughs> uh, and do He's it. Like spending time yeah, in hospital. Even if you <laughs> even if you're not uh, using the restroom, please wash your hands. But worthiness then just to get back to the main the main point is that it's so exhausting, but it robs us of true connection. So how do we like actually my dad's of opinion? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, Mike. please, please. I'm just saying my dad's opinion of me still exists in my head. Mm. I don't like it. And you're still hustling for it. Yeah. he j Even during this conversation, he's like, you shouldn't have said that. That was mm. inappropriate. Mm. Mm. That wasn't respectful of me. Hmm. Wow. Oh, now he's mad that I just told you guys that right. he. Right. And it's not him, that. though. It's your idea of him. Well, mm. to be fair, he did say those things throughout life. Right. right. Um, it's, it's him, as Mike has described, him in you. Your your DNA. There, there's like a dad AI in Those my head. Patterns, yeah, yeah. Well, that's also like I've talked about that with people before. You spend enough time with someone, you you know exactly what they would say in almost any situation. Hmm. Like if my dad was sitting here, I know like like though almost exact. What would he say hearing this talk? That we're having. He'd like he he the one of his favorites is like look if like if I figured it out you guys will too. Mm. You know? <laughs> what does that like, mean? Like anytime it means he doesn't want to go deep. He doesn't want to talk about deep things. Try yeah. to go deep. He'd be like look like you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. Like I made it here. Yeah. And if I can't like it's not that mm -hmm. big as much a big a deal you think it is mm -hmm. right now. It's not that big. Well, what I hear him saying in that in, in that is him wanting you to. Um, not get stuck on the journey, but wanting to hand you um, his legacy in a way for you to do better than he did. So he's attempting to affirm that sometimes it gets tough, but don't worry, you'll figure it out. Yeah. 
rather than what we're doing, which is the hard work of stopping and acknowledging that, you know, sometimes it's tough and talking about it, naming it. We're kind of examining that part of the roller, like that tall part, upside down part of the roller. And I think that that's something that we in our society don't have a lot of space to do. So this is like an amazing we're lucky to have the opportunity to examine this yeah. part of the roller coaster yeah. but really it's something that our, our dads never did never. and never were given permission to do can you think about your father's father my dad was a refugee he didn't have time to no. examine things he just no. had to no so what we're doing here and talking um, is super unique and and guys our age i think are feeling these things are thinking these things there's these shifts that are happening in our culture but to create the space to stop and to talk and to name it as men who are attempting to figure this out is so unique and so important i'm just so grateful to have this opportunity to do this with you me too so how do we internalize that worthiness Mm. is there like a is there a you like right worthy like 10 times on a paper Mm. each day like or is is it something you just understand once and yeah? I, I think literally nothing in life is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But of course, there's this human desire for. We want everything. Yeah. In a snap of a finger. Right. We, yeah. We want love. Like that. You know, we want connection. We want resources. We want achievement. But like, when does life ever work like that? <laughs> no. But again, all humans across all cultures right. across centuries have had this desire anything ever worth something costs something and usually the things that um cost the most or cost time and it takes time to do that that deep eternal work internal and eternal work of um recognizing or coming to a place of worthiness Mm -hmm. um and so uh, to to answer your question about how how does that happen it's a practice that's that unfolds but i know that you've read uh, gifts of imperfection can you speak to that just a little is bit is that by Brene Brown it's what Brene Brown's book gift of yeah. <laughs> what, what up, up by yeah. the way is that for like li- in, in myself yeah. at having read none of her work mm-hmm. is that the one you would start with um, it's the one that I started with mm-hmm. um, it's the one that began a deep introspection about my um, view of myself and my own unworthiness mm. uh, that haunts me and plagues me and so that uh, that's what began for me. And it, it really lays out these 10 or 11 guide, maybe 12. Oh, sorry, Brene. Um, these guideposts about um, practices that you can do and, and to become habits that you create um, to reverse what has been 30 uh, years of learning unworthiness from our folks, from our friends, from um, this world being unworthy, being never enough. And so these guideposts, um, came from out of her research um, about shame um, and about how to develop shame resilience. And so these guideposts are ones that I, I practice in different ones at different times. And so... Can you an example of one or two? Sure. D- could you can you think of one? Please, you first. No, I wanted you to speak a little bit about your experience with Brene because I've had such a, a in powerful experience with her work. My... The thing that I love most about listening to her podcast or her writings is she makes it okay to feel shame and unworthiness. And she sort of has, I think, which, you know, when we look back a hundred years from now, I, I do think people will be like, oh, she, at least in modern American culture, 
started the conversation of, yes, you can, we, we all feel unworthy. We all feel shame. Mm. Let's talk about it and do something about it. And that's what she's done for me in a very, in a very big way. And even my, you know, my mom right now is reading her newest book, which I believe is called Braving the, Kevin, what's her newest book, Braving the Wild, Braving the Wilderness? Um, there is, um, so Rising Strong is the latest one that I read. I think that she has one that just came out. It just came out last month, yeah. Yeah, and actually. Which, uh, by the way, my mom's going to get so mad at me because she's told me five times so <laughs> the name of it and to read it. <laughs> I haven't gotten it yet. And a little shout out again for Brene. She's speaking um, tomorrow night here at a local college. And what, what? I'm going. Uh, can we go? I think what it's sold do? out, but you can, you can, I can some strings. Also, I'll, I'll send Alex you, is in the publishing world. I'll send you a link. <laughs> I'll send you a link agent. to see if maybe you can still get there. Kathy bought the tickets a long time ago, but maybe you can find a way in. I promise I won't yell what up though from the audience. Do you wait? So what were yeah. one of the practice, one or two of the practices? So I won't forget what you're about to ask. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear from Kevin. So I'll, Traveling Kevin. I'll read a few of them. Um, there's 10 of them. Um, 10 guideposts for wholehearted living. And wholehearted living is uh, the opposite of this mindset of unworthiness. And mm-hmm. So she talks about this wholehearted living. Because it has to be replaced by something. Yeah, it does. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's creating a new pattern, exactly. Yeah. So um, I'll read them all for you. Cultivating authenticity. Letting go of what people think. Number two, cultivating self-compassion, letting go of perfectionism, cultivating a resilient spirit, letting go of numbing and powerlessness. Number four, cultivating gratitude and joy, letting go of scarcity and fear of the dark. Number six, cultivating creativity, letting go of comparison. Number seven, cultivating play and rest, letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and produ- productivity as self-worth. Such a good one. Number eight. I'm col- exhausted. Look how great yeah. I am. Yep. I've worked myself yeah. to the bone. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy at work. Oh my gosh, things are so busy. That means you're cool and you're good. And you <laughs> Mike and I have job. a friend. Her name is Dina who says, busy is a choice. Mm. And all these people who are just like bragging, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy choosing to be busy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I read an article recently they talked about how busy um the, the number one word that ruins relationships most is busy because it just says yeah. i don't care about you enough yeah to how have you been uh oh, busy for me it's a, it's my cop out yeah of anything so busy and people seem to let me use it yeah because they have this perception of my job mm-hmm. which, <laughs> which isn't is accurate <laughs> Well, sometimes it's sometimes really accurate. Sure. Like yeah. if I have a song that's popular at the time, I, I might be like zipping country to country, mm. and I'm actually like my phone's off, and I'm like doing a lot of things. And then there's these mo- like where I'm like writing new material, where I'm like so not busy, mm. I'm like much less busier than mm-hmm. they are right. having a like nine to five job, but I know that I can say at any time, like I'm really busy and people will kind of be like, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I've y- totally taken advantage of that. Yeah. Time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
when I'm not that big, oh, I'm like too busy to yeah. do it. And yeah, it can be totally. this way of just like getting out of doing what you actually yeah. want to do. Yeah, it's what Brene says is a st- it's a status symbol that the more busy you are because of the work that you do, you somehow are better or worthy, right. more worthy or something. <laughs> Um, but just to finish out the, these other ones, um, number eight, cultivating calm and still letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. Number nine, cultivating meaningful work, letting go of self-doubt and supposed uh, self-doubt and supposed to. And number ten, cultivating laughter, song, and dance, letting go of being cool and always in control. Mm. It's like Ultimate Bros Day. <laughs> it's Ultimate Bros Day, for <laughs> sure. But this book is like incredible and like changed my life and she she even has um part of own network own shout out um has this uh 12-week um course uh, like an e-course that she has on the own network to go through not just reading the book but studying it and watching these videos and you know having this self-work to do with it and it's have you done it i have twice and recommend Absolutely. So to like us and the listeners, where they go, where do they go? Own.com slash gifts of imperfection. You can find it online somewhere. Um, you can pay. And then I think you can even like lead a group or something like that. I've done it with a, a small community of, of folks. Um, and uh, it, it's been, I, I lead it, but it's even revolutionary as I lead it. Just like yeah. so. And I, I read, read the book and then did the, the work and it was another layer of learning. And it's just, it's so good. Um, I, I highly recommend it. What can f- families do that maybe uh, um, don't have hospice mm. um, that are on the other side of this? Uh, family members still alive, mm. but maybe they're getting close to death. Mm. What can both be the person getting close to death and the family members, w- w- what advice do you have for them? It's mm. an excellent question. Um, I, I feel like... And, it's, and I'm sure it's a big question. It's, so it's a really big question, but I feel like the most important thing that I would want uh, people to hear is that first, talk. Talk about these things. Um, what if people don't want to talk? So the question is, does the patient want to talk? Mm. Um, does the person with the disease, the decline, want to talk? And what if the answer is no? If the answer is no, then it's important for the decision maker or the DPOA, the durable power of attorney, or the, the next of kin or the primary bereaved, however you want to call them, the next person to be making decisions in the family to um, be given permission by the person, by the patient, to make decisions on their behalf. And then that person, I encourage them to have a conversation with the patient, even if it's just asking a list of questions. Do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Do you, do you want to be resuscitated? Do you want to have life-sustaining treatment? Do you want, and these are hard questions and there's some guidelines of how to go through this. There's even this, something called a pulsed form, um, a physician ordered life-sustaining treatment is what PULSE stands for, but, or also known as the pink form that, that can kind of guide you in this, um, in this conversation. Um, but all of that just begins with being open and willing to talk about hard things. 
one of the, the my favorite things about my job is that being in the family unit and having those dynamics already preset, um, it's difficult to break the mold and to speak up and to talk about hard things or things that you think are going to make the, the patient sad or make the family mad or to disrupt like this faith that the person's going to get better. But really what's happening is that you're being robbed of this deeper conversation, this deeper connection about meaning and what's important for mom, what's important for dad in this time. And so I think if there's anything that I could encourage families to do is to just to talk, to start to talk. And if um, the conversation feels like there's a, a lot of questions more than answers, more than there's a lot of like oh, unknowns, then you can talk to your primary care physician. You can talk to a nurse um, and hospice and palliative care. Palliative care is basically just um, pain and symptom management. If, if it, there was anything. Well, my understanding is yeah. that palliative care kind of precedes hospice. Is, it, is that accurate? It, it does and it doesn't. Um, palliative care is its own thing, but it also overlaps with hospice. So in general, palliative care is pain and symptom management. So it, it's actually a very um, evolving and expanding field right now. It's really an exciting time to be in this field and seeing how um, palliative care is rapidly growing um, and reaching more folks that aren't at, at end of life but are actually in the way, middle it of takes treatment. Into account, if I'm not mistaken, quality of life. That's exactly right? what it is. So it's not just like treating right. people to the point where their symptoms are worse than the disease. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you have a doctor whose specific job is to make sure that pain and symptoms are under control and the quality of life is is, is good worthwhile yeah. yeah and that's exactly right so what the reason why I, from my um, pov that this field is expanding is because palliative care has been primarily just end of life and it's extending to um, folks who are um, undergoing treatment or just having chronic pain um, and it's expanding beyond end of life to increasing or improving as you've said quality of life so um, I have palliative care patients who are not end of life, um, but we're trying to get their their pain or their symptoms under control. Um, and so th I say all of that to say it's an expanding field. And so it's it's becoming more probable that your local hospital um, will have a palliative care doctor or a palliative care team or somebody who sees patients um, as a palliative care referral. So that's a good place to start if you have questions about um, end of life or about um, a loved one's symptoms or pain or just you feel like you've seen different doctors, different specialists, and they just can't figure out what's happening with mom. Um, ask for a palliative care referral. Yeah. And what will happen is that palliative care doctor will uh, try to um, bring all of the information that you bring to them, um, bring that under one roof and begin to manage the care better. Um, and begin to um, take a deeper look at not just what's happening with your loved one, but what the goals are going forward. Um, and like you talked correctly about quality of life. What are your plans? What are your goals? What are your hopes for mom? What are your hopes for dad going forward? In, in, you know, and the doctor then allows you or the loved one to become, uh, the patient or the loved one to become in the driver's seat, really, to sort of dictate where the care is heading. So all of, the, all of that to say, to answer your question, begin by talking, being willing and open to talk about hard and difficult things. If a lot of questions are arising out of these conversations, then seek, um, have a conversation with your doctor. Um, if the doctor 
um, you know, is is not the right person to speak to, then you can ask them for a palliative care referral. Um, and then um, the other thing that I what I hope is to really change the stigma of hospice, which is sort of this has the stigma of like the death doctor or like when you choose hospice, it's because you're given up or, you mm. know, you're, you're, you're going to die because you, thought, yeah. Yeah, because you chose hospice, you're going to die soon. Um, and, um, you know, even as the chaplain, I come in and they're like, well, we're not ready for you yet. They're not dying yet. And I'm like, well, m- maybe maybe hospice is not just about end of life. Um, end of life care. Maybe it's about the life part and the care part, um, and uh, getting you stable and improving quality of life in some way. So, um, if nothing else, to change the stigma it would only happen by beginning to have conversations and beginning to be willing to talk about hard things. Um, and it just takes one person in the family being willing to do that. Yeah, and I, I, if we, I could just like reinforce what you said with some anecdotes. Um, mm-hmm. With my father, uh, you know, he had brain cancer, so he's going to 12 different doctors. I'm exaggerating, mm-hmm. I don't know who it was, but he's going to all these different yeah. doctors. You know, one to make sure the scar, and is he another person right. like with the chemo, another person the radiation. So they're all different doctors. And I heard someone recommended getting pa- a palliative doctor. Mm-hmm. And At this point, my mom was just like understandably like maxed out. Like, mm. and uh, mind you, it was really hard to move my father. Like, I mean, he's a big guy, mm-hmm. and he couldn't walk. So, he's like getting him in out, out of cars yeah. was not like easy. Right. Um, and into these offices, and then these doctors, and then doctors are behind. You're waiting there, and you're late for the night. It, you know, it's a yeah. whole thing. And so. Like the thought of going to one more doctor like just, just drive my mom nuts. Yeah. Um, but we like to talk down on the phone to this nurse we had that was like our guardian angel. And she was like, listen, I highly recommend you go to one. I know. Mm. I know it's a lot. I highly recommend you go to one more of the palliative doctor mm-hmm. who basically is like, like you said, amassed information from all the other doctors mm-hmm. and then sat with us and made a recommendation on how to proceed. Right. And like that changed over time at first. It was like treating dad with chemotherapy. And then it got to a point where like he was like worse with the chemo than he was without it. That's right. And so the palliative care doctor recommended Mm -hmm. that we stop chemotherapy and because the quality of life was so low. Right. And like I would go to my dad, like he just almost like non-responsive, mm-hmm. you know. And then eventually recommend like that we get hospice involved, and s- and so then I want to chase that by like saying what hospice means to me now. And maybe Alex, you can also mm. was like hospice like saved my life. Wow. Um. Not literally, but just like, t- like without hospice, I would have been so lost mm. in this process. Mm. Um, we had a social worker who, um, I'm not sure if they offered us a chaplain or not. Mm. In, in Michigan, it was hospice in Michigan. Not every team has a chaplain. And yeah. they w- one, they were like so great. They were like, they always picked up the phone. Mm-hmm. You could call 24-7. Yeah. Um, if 
you know they needed to get someone else they were on a call they'd always call you back like it was just run like a first off like run like a really for any business it just impressed me like mm. their custom for lack of yeah. term, like their customer the response service, time yeah the yeah. response time and the one thing that the social worker told me that uh one of the two big things was one your father's gonna go when he decides to go mm. so if he wants to um, transition or pass away, whatever word you want to use, with you there, he'll do it when you're there. Mm. And if he doesn't, mm-hmm. he won't. Wow. Um, before that, we were like, my sister's like sleeping in the chair next mm. to him, the whole thing. And, you know, ev- like, yeah, but th- there's a tendency to, to uh, hurt yourself, like not take care of yourself, right. to always be there for this person and you end up um, spreading yourself too thin and you're not really there for them. You're cantankerous or irritable and tired. So that one like Mm. little paragraph was so big for me. Mm. And then I want to pull up on my phone. She gave me this list of six things to do before he passed. I've shared this with so many friends. Mm. What's what's the list? I'm going to pull it up. I have to walk across the room and get my phone. Hold on. And he's back. He's back. What up, Dell? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see if I can find it. Typing in Evernote. Going off airplane mode. Here we go. The six things to do. And this is like really, um, I think, before someone dies. And she gave me a source. She didn't make it up. It was Ira, I-R-A, Boyd, B-O-Y. Oh, wow. He's a friend of mine. No way. Yeah. He is amazing. I thought it was a woman. He's a, yeah, he's an incredible doctor who's a pioneer in palliative care. Ira Bayak. You said what? Ira Bayak. Ira Bayak. Okay. And do you know... Michael Hebb? Michael Hebb? No. I don't know anything about Ira either. Anyways, I right, go read, read the list. Okay. So, number one, give and get love. Mm. So, I remember her illustrating this point, like, saying, like, when my dad was in the hospital, they're like, if you want to get in the bed with him and mm. snuggle with, hug, kiss, mm. give the love you need to get and get the love you need to get. Mm. Uh, number two, forgiveness. Forgive him or her. Um, and apologize for anything you need to. You know, if there's something you're not complete with, mm. say you're sorry while you can. Mm. Um, and allow them to do the same, the patient to do the same, and then even if they don't ask for an apology, like, forgive. Mm. And forgive doesn't mean to become naive right. or like that it was okay. Yeah, to permit the action, it doesn't mean that. It means you're letting go of mm-hmm. resentment yeah. or th- the feeling that this person needs to be punished mm-hmm. for that, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't make whatever happened okay. Mm-hmm. Um, number three, she wrote, you need to, or she said, you need to say, I'll be okay without you over and over again. And like she she said, it, it like kind of gave a prompt, like you've laid a foundation for me. And so I would say to my dad, you know, of course, I'm going to miss you, but 
the father you've been for me is a will allow me to mm. carry on and I will I'll be okay. So wow. you're affirming his role while also giving him permission. Wow. Right. Um number four, say goodbye. She said always say goodbye when leaving the room. So like any time I left the room I would say goodbye, Dad. Mm. Um and she said the the reason is that this gives him closure. So mm. should he decide, hey, this is my time, it, 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 yeah, he has closure mm-hmm. um, and doesn't feel like anything's open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, number five, say thank you. Um, she said the, no, the big questions people have, patience and getting into death is, did my life matter and did I have an impact? Mm. Um, so you can answer those two questions from your perspective. Mm. Like, you know, for me, like, yeah, my dad's life definitely mattered mm. because I mean, most obviously he made my life. Yeah. Um, and so I would go through these big lists of like what he had done for me, like the, the, the studios that he would drive me to mm. like on six mile, um, you know, like the musical instruments he'd buy when i stunk at music mm. and like just supporting supporting i can just remember my dad he was at every sporting event every concert and this one time i was on the basketball team and i wasn't very good at basketball <laughs> so I, I like barely ever played and there'd be some games where i didn't play at all and we were playing like pontiac northern or something and it's like 45 minute drive um and my dad like very like sat me down before I like left to school that day and he's like listen I, c- I it's breaking my heart but I can't make it mm. to the game today and like it didn't really matter to me I was like dad like I know dad I, like, I barely play anyways like I was I was kind of embarrassed anyways yeah. I didn't play yeah. like he'd come all the way <laughs> like I was just <laughs> sitting there yeah and <laughs> you know beautiful sight so he like he's like listen he's like you're the best bench warmer i've ever little, seen little little mike posner sitting on the bench he's like i i have a case he was an attorney i have a case i can't move it mm. i'm very sorry but i i can't be at your game today i said dad's fine so like i go to school that day we get on the like we put our uniforms on in the locker room, like goofing around. We take the bus to Pontiac Northern. We get there. We're like, we get there like two hours before our game to like warm up and do the whole thing. I get off the bus. The stands are completely empty except for one guy is sitting there. <laughs> and it's my dad. And he's like, not only is he there, he's there like before we were there. Mm. And I feel like that happened a few times where he was like, listen, I can't be there, but he was always there. Mm. And so, like he'd either change it around or something. Wow. Um, so I, yeah, I would just recount to him in detail. Yeah. Those kind of things. Yeah. And say thank you for them mm. because they do have an impact and mm. I wouldn't be sitting here right now without him. Mm. Um, number six. In the last moments, let him know or her know that it's okay to go. Mm. Um, yeah, we used to just say 
that to him like repeatedly mm. um, you know like it's it's oh like what you're doing is is yeah. okay right. and when you feel you're ready it's all right mm. like it's natural there's nothing wrong with mm. it it's 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 okay yeah that's beautiful Mike. so those were the six things and like yeah. if that woman mm-hmm. wouldn't have sitting wouldn't have sat in our living room yeah. and like told me that it would have mm. been a very different experience. Right. And if I didn't, if we never called hospice, she wouldn't have been sitting right. in our living room. So mm. you had a, you had somebody to sojourn with you and to hold space and to normalize the experience and affirm yeah, you. Yeah. So I just yeah. If anyone's listening, like, if you can get palliative care mm-hmm. and if you can get hospice, yeah, and then take advantage like Kevin's saying mm-hmm. of the services that they render cuz they're, they're everyone you can they're darn good at it yeah and you know um you might have Kevin but you might <laughs> have someone else in in like who does what he does mm. and yeah it makes a big difference yeah it does it makes a big and you know, as far as like my dad also like was very confused at yeah. the end of his life as cuz he had brain surgery and like getting coaching on how to talk to someone right. who's seeing things that you're not seeing right or is conf- you know confused like who some people are or where he is and y- you know you don't like it, it, it actually isn't always best to like tell them they're wrong mm-hmm. you know if it's if it's not leading into them being scared right. you know there were times where someone would be in the room and dad would he would think like that was his mother mm. who was long deceased yeah or like sometimes he would see his mother and like no one else was in the room but me and him mm. and at first like i would always just correct him mm-hmm. like i think you're seeing like a dress a dresser or something that looks like mm. a human or that's actually not and that the social worker is like you know actually if ask ask questions is it okay that she's there mm-hmm. and if, if so like and a lot of times yeah it didn't have to turn into this argument over right. whether something's real or not because right. it's real for them yeah you know affirming that experience yeah and and i i want to hear what your ex- your experience about hospice but just to sort of um normalize some of that it's very common um i think as a chaplain but in in this hospice work that families uh, tell us that their their loved one the patient is having these existential visions that are not perhaps they're hallucinations but in some cases they're just visions that they're having or experiences that they're having of loved ones who have passed and gone before them who are now coming back and visiting them mm-hmm. and so this is a very common thing if your loved one is is having these experiences as mike has said um affirm these experiences um in in asking questions by holding space with them and um and and instead of correcting um affirm because if you try to correct you're missing an opportunity to to connect with them correction takes away or robs from connection and so to sit there with them if they're if it's 1960 and you're in europe and you're (laughs) at a birthday party join them there um if if you know if you can, if you can do that, it's it's uh, it can be a beautiful connection that you have, um, and maybe one of the last as well. Um, but I, I have had patients that have uh, talked about like um, packing or preparing. I even had one patient um, 
ask their, their, their loved one to pack their suitcases or, and print the boarding passes. This discussion of like preparation for a journey of some kind. Wow. And so there's this experience of loved ones coming to pick them up to to uh, journey with them to to the next life. Um, and even conversation from patients about like going through a checklist of, oh, what about this thing? What about that thing? And um, sometimes they're lucid, sometimes not. They come and go, but there's this theme of preparation for a journey. And if we can affirm as loved ones, we can affirm that journey that the patient is about to go on, the, the, our, our mom, dad, uh, child is about to go on. We're affirming their spirit. And like you've said correctly, given, giving them permission to go. Um, and to say, you know, as this partner said, I've already printed the boarding passes. We'll, we'll go when you're ready. We'll go when you're ready. Did you pack the bag? The bags are packed. Wow. We'll go when you're ready. And, and that language came out of this experience. And it could have been a missed opportunity, but this partner um, was wise enough to ask me about it, have a conversation with me. And we, we came up with these phrases to affirm. And um, the patient um, left you know, on this journey. Um, and there was that separation where the, the loved one went and the partner stayed, but they had these deep spiritual connections and conversations about this journey the, pa the, the patient was about mm -hmm. to go on that would have been a missed opportunity otherwise. Mm. Yeah. Well said. What, yeah. what, how do you think of hospice now, Alex? Is it the death care? What, how did you say? The it? death doctor the coming. The death doctor coming. No, that's the oncologist. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> oncologist was wonderful too. For, you know, I thought it was just my family, but hearing Mike, your experience, it sounds like I might have experienced a universal circumstance where hospice was relief. Mm. You know, my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer 14 months before he passed. And, you know, for the first 13 months, there was no relief because we were, and my dad was just, you know, interestingly enough, chemo is hurting yourself to hopefully cure yeah. yourself. Mm. Yeah. So it's 13 months of pain. And that's just the physical aspect. It was also 13 months of not talking about it. Mm. So it was 13 months of spiritual clogging mm. and emotional clogging. And there's something about the patient, and in this case, my dad, saying, okay, call them. Mm. Was him opening like a window in a room that hadn't had oxygen in 13 months. Wow. And in came Chaplain Kevin, in came these doctors and nurses whose entire specialty is this situation that we're going through that we think nobody can relate to. Hmm. <laughs> and they're like, that's our specialty. They <laughs> they're like, that's, day. that's, yeah. we've done six today so far. Yeah. And they're so good. I remember I was actually talking to Ira, who you just quoted and telling him that, the it's so cool you know the guy it's i know one palliative care doctor <laughs> it's not like i'm like deep in the palliative world but you know the palliative care doctor that i quote i was and, and you know he's Amazing. the one who recommended uh chaplain kevin okay. and his team. starting to make sense yeah yeah so 
You know, it was like a black belt ninja level of medicine. Because when, at least for my dad, those final three weeks were so unique. Not mm. really from a medical, maybe from a medical situation, I don't know. But from a emotional, psychological mm. And I'm sure Kevin probably saw it from a spiritual lens, but I saw it just from a psychological lens. My dad like didn't want to answer certain questions where at a, you know, a normal hospital, a normal patient would answer yes, no sign on this dotted line. Whereas a hospice doctor, you know, has seen it. And she, she knew like, look, let's, let's not even talk about the form. The form's dumb. But if, if you know, and think, she just knew how to handle these situations with a level of gentleness that our family had been craving and we didn't even know we needed. Um, so my recommendation of hospice couldn't be higher. And I'm extremely grateful for the whole team, the nurses, mm -hmm. the doctors, the social workers, the chaplain, everybody on that team played such a crucial role. And gave our, my family the gift of peace the final couple of weeks of my dad's life, mm. which is what we had been craving his entire yeah. end of life process. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing about your, your family in particular, um, it, it, f it was three weeks, um, but it felt much longer than that. Um, I know for you all, you and I've talked about this, but, um, for me personally, it felt like lifetimes were being lived in those three weeks because we were doing, we were talking about things that we've been waiting to talk about our entire lives, right? We were doing such deep spiritual work. And when I talk about, you know, this invitation to, to reconcile and to talk about deep and meaningful things, your family in particular is one that stands out as one that was so spiritually starving and hungry for these conversations to be led and needing an outsider to do that for them. And I just came in at that right time to, to have those conversations. And, um, it, it is an opportunity to do that, but it's the, like I said to you on that last night that he passed, I said, this is just the beginning, just the beginning of yeah. you continuing this self work. You've all been invited to this party, quote unquote party, this opportunity to reconnect mm -hmm. and to go deep. But this is the beginning. You now have this gift of a reminder of loss that can spur you on to greater goods um, in other areas of your life as well, because you have this constant reminder of of loss and difficulty. And um, you know, I shared with you that often in this work, uh, you know, we say, or it has been said, that we die the way we live. Um, and in your and I's conversation, you rightfully said, if we die the way we live maybe we need to change the way we live so that we can change the way we die. Um, I think Credit that for that goes to my friend, Austin, Austin. Okay. Well, shout out to Austin. Shout out Austin Bizno. Yeah. What up though? So <laughs> <laughs> that, that profound, um, idea that death teaches us about life. And so if we alter the way that we live because of death, then we can also transform the way that we die too. I think that that is such a profound way to view, death in general and to take away the stigma and the, the skull and crossbones of death, like death as a teacher as opposed to death as an enemy Hanya. shout out to harry potter yeah and like what so it's like 
you know, if I were to start dying right now, I'm probably going to die wanting the validation mm. of <laughs> like others if mm. I don't like sort that out, sure. you know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm like to make it not like so much of a joke. Like I can imagine like being embarrassed of like my body not looking mm-hmm. perfectly anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, you know, uh, uh, sure. and, mm. and, and think, uh, think about the tragedy of that. Like, b- like your body falling apart and you being embarrassed of that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how the end of your, like, that's the, what you're thinking about when your life ends. You know, right. like that's like, that's terrible. That's huge. So, but, but if you think about that your whole life, like chances are you're going to be thinking about that mm. at the end. Yeah. So, um, do you seek heaven? People have these sort of break, you know, like the theme of this podcast is like, you know, spiritual work. Mm. Do you see people have these kind of major breakthroughs at the end when they're are they're kind of forced to. To look these sort of think about these sort of things and uh, like have transformations. Um. Which is actually asking, like, is, is, do sometimes people not die how they live? Mm. <laughs> like, do they ever, like, snap out of some terrible behavior? Because like in the movies when they become all of a sudden nice people yeah. and right. loving and. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> wow. No. Then why do the movies do it? They gave me this false expectation. I thought we were going to be singing Kumbaya. Right. You know? Um, I, so, there is opportunities again you know so uh the invitation that goes out to the family to to reconcile it also goes to the person um they also have this opportunity to be part of this thing that's unfolding for them um in in my work um what i focus on most um is acceptance and so while they may not have some great personality shift or some um, grand um, revelation about their life and the meaning of their life and all of the way that Hollywood has a way of um, visualizing the, de- the dying process. Um, acceptance is a powerful thing that happens internally for the person. Mm-hmm. And acceptance can be as simple as becoming aware of your body declining and that the dying process is happening and coming to a place of acceptance about that process and again much like grief i think um, that acceptance is cyclical or or layered that first there's this acceptance about i'm going to die i have this this disease but then as you've described about like your body deforming becoming uh, maybe not comfortable but coming to a place of acceptance about okay i don't look how i remember myself when i look in the mirror i i I lost a lot of weight Um, i have no more hair because of the treatment that i was doing um, for uh, the female patients of mine who've gone through um, surgeries to remove uh, breasts, uh, this body um, that they don't recognize anymore of themselves shifts and changes and coming to a place of acceptance. Not that it's okay that losing your hair is okay or losing weight is okay or having a double mastectomy is okay, but coming to a place of I'm okay that I can be okay um, while this is happening. Um, there's a part of me that will remain true in all of this, a part of me that um, 
is so core to who I am that my physical changes um, aren't being affecting that core. But then there's another level, the physical changes, but then there's this um, emotional shift that happens in the family when the family begins to realize that the patient is declining. And so then there's that change that happens and then coming to a place of acceptance about that. So there's this layered acceptance that happens that's ultimately, as a wise uh, chaplain once shared with me, um, acceptance is the gateway to peace. Mm. And when we come to a place of acceptance, it opens that gate that gateway um, leading us to peace. So a lot of my work is just that, helping patients, helping people come to a place of acceptance about what it is that they're avoiding. Um, and avoidance is just a coping mechanism. It's a way that we um, survive in this world where we're constantly inundated with pain and, and difficulty and we, we put things off and avoid um, difficult difficulty um, because we want to focus on what's important. We want to focus on um, you know, just being facing adversity all the time. And so avoidance um, is something that I try to step into with the patient and help them come to a place of acceptance about what, what they're avoiding. And um, so w- to answer your question, does a big shift happen or does this, does this big change happen? Um, no, not in the way that we, we watch in movies, but yes, in a very deep personal level acceptance is possible and and therefore peace is possible and that's something that happens that even families can see tangibly that i can think of one one patient in particular who a vietnam veteran um, a a lot of ptsd um, mental uh, uh, difficulties um, diagnoses uh, bipolar and personality disorder different things and for that man, through all the pain he's been through, to come to a place of acceptance about his life and the meaning that he's had in his life, having been estranged from his daughter and uh, reconnecting, um, for him to come to a place of peace um, shows the, the power of acceptance. And peace was the center of our conversation. I would always ask him, where's your, where's your peace level at right, right now? Where is it at today? Um, and we would, we would do meditations together to, to come to a an awareness of where he was at, how he was feeling, um, what his body was doing. Um, and he's a good example um, to show if anybody can come to a place of acceptance about difficulty in their life, if he's able to do it, uh, peace, peace is, uh, is possible. So he did it. He did. Wow. He did. It, what I'm hearing when you, when you say that is... It seems like that's the last time in our life mm. when we have the opportunity to be okay mm. no matter what's mm. going on around us. And we can practice that, mm. all of us, yeah. the three of us and everyone listening right now, mm-hmm. because there's something not okay going on in a- a- all of our lives. That's right. We can practice being okay. We can practice for that moment mm. now. Mm-hmm. And hey, you know, whatever the the circumstance is, whether it's you know I I didn't get to sleep last night, or the this iteration of the book wasn't quite right for you, Alex, or mm. yeah, I feel lost on my next album. Which direction we're going? Mm-hmm. Th- we uh, we have the capacity, it mm-hmm. seems like, to be 
okay mm. no matter what the circumstances and mm. that seems like a decision mm. Mm. and what what else do we have to do than, mm. than practice that yeah and uh, it's important to note as you're saying there's a lot that's not okay in our world right now tons there's a lot that's not okay in our families right now there's a lot that's not okay in ourselves right now but to hold in tension both that there are things that are not okay and that need to change but that i am coming from a place of worthiness that tension is 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 possible um to to hold in tandem that i am both okay and things are not okay right mm. and um that's the the difficult work that we're doing is by attempting to come to um, terms um, with who we are and how we can affect change positively in our own personal lives and this inner pierce peace that we're seeking, but also bringing about that peace on an external level as well. Um, so I think that you, you've said it, you've said it right. There are things that are not okay. Um, and so to have a pretend peace, like I'm okay, <laughs> everything's not okay, but that's avoidance. Not I'm peace, yeah. That's yeah. avoidance. That's avoidance. Sneaky avoidance. It's sneaky avoidance. Avoidance can look like peace. It can. Especially in LA. Yeah. But the thing about peace is that it. <laughs> especially in Venice. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thing about peace is that it, it cannot um, pretend. Um, peace is something that's tangible. It's something that. Um, uh, just just in the same way that you can you can fake happy, but you can't fake joy. Um, you, you can fake. Um, <laughs> you can fake, I guess. Um, you know, being okay, but you can't fake being at peace. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and peace is something that you can feel off of somebody when they're in peace, um, rather than just no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm I'm okay. Just I don't really want to talk about it right now. I'm okay. I'm absolutely not okay <laughs> when I say that. Right? I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Like I am not okay. But I'm just basically saying I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. So you can fake being okay, but you can't fake being at peace. So it's it's a practice. It's something that we have to go back to continually. Um, it's something that we have to implement into our day. I know you meditate. Um, so it's something that we, we do as a practice, not just like have because we've found some type of you know perfect peace. Do you recommend a certain or lead a certain type of meditation toward to families that that aren't that don't have a meditation practice? Mm. Um, the most common meditation practice that I use for my patients is when they're experiencing pain, mm. um, and the medicine that they're taking isn't helping them. I do sort of a like a body a body meditation or like a mindfulness meditation, almost like a check in, starting at the top of their head, working their way down through every every extremity in their body moving all the way down to their feet to just become aware first aware of where the pain is and to create sort of a distance between so like on each whether it be like the top of the head or the ears are you saying feel it what are you actually saying um so it begins by just having them get to a comfortable sitting or laying position and then starting in the top of the head and just i walk them through becoming aware of what is being felt and what the sensation is and becoming aware in a separated way separating out the physical from the spiritual or the cognitive from the physical so the physical pain that's existing um, the cognitive has the ability to step outside of the body and just look into and have introspection about like i'm having pain in my knee right now 
I can feel that pain. I know it feels very metaphysical when I say it like this, but the meditation gives an opportunity to separate um, some of the parts of the body, some some of the most important parts of the body, the the cognitive, the emotional, and the spiritual out of the physical, which Mm -hmm. is where most of the pain is coming from. So, um, but you've said you even said it's the same sensation of you thinking of like I'm the, I I'm cognizant that I'm speaking into the microphone right now. Right. I'm not just so. There's another layer of yeah. awareness, and the same is true of like a physical sensation. Like that's right. My knee feels cold right now. Right. But right. Simultaneously, I know that I am feeling that right. my knee knee feels cold. Right, right, now. right. And there gives us empowerment to the to the patient that if You're they kind of a, an observer, if you become the whole thing. that's exactly that's a, the best way to put it. You said it much better than me. To become an observer, um, and it's just a mindfulness check in with their body. Mm-hmm. That a lot of times pain just has this nagging sensation where it's just happening to us or in us and. It's a physical thing that's happening, so we take a physical pill to make the physical go away, but to invite in this spiritual, emotional, cognitive mindfulness allows for the, those other factors of our humanity to become strengthened and to impact um, or differentiate between the pains that we're having. Do you have any examples of, of people like showing back up? You know, people say like, oh, now like the light, it, like glimmers every time i think about the mm. person that died or like mm. are there weird stories like that you've come across you mean where a family member experiences the loved one who has passed coming back you mean correct um i mean i've heard a bunch of stories different things um one of the most recent ones uh was a, a patient really liked butterflies a lot and the loved one told me had told me this uh, prior to their passing and we talked about butterflies a lot and their significance and then um well after the patient passed um he was thinking about the patient and just sort of like was i just wanted their partner the partner um okay. i just like I, the the partner was thinking i you know i want oh, i just want to know that you're okay i just like want to know that um like you're in a better place and just want to know that that I did everything okay for you. I just was like thinking this, mm-hmm. maybe not asking for a sign or asking for something, but just sort of like contemplating, like, I just, I just want to know that. And he said, as he was walking, a butterfly came flying past him and landed on this leaf really close to his face and like looked at him and then flew away. Mm-hmm. And he said with tears in his eyes, how powerful that, mm. that experience was. Now I, I can't do anything but affirm that experience that they had. I don't want to read too much into it personally mm-hmm. because um, I wasn't the one that was having the experience. Yeah. So I'm not saying that this is what we should look for when I love ones past, you know, <laughs> right. something, some sign like that. But I've, I've had stories, I've heard stories. I've had families share stories with me about this. Um, but in, in all we are, what makes us human and differentiates, differentiates us from other species is our ability to make meaning that when things happen, they don't just happen, but we want to know what they mean and what that means about us and about our place in the world. And so we should affirm this. We shouldn't deny it. Be like, no, nothing has meaning. Like, that's a very easy way to like live life. Like nothing has any meaning. Nothing means anything. That's boring. Right. 
or or too much to be an extreme like oh what is your phone laying on the chair mean that <laughs> does it mean that you know it's pointed at alex yeah it's like, <laughs> do you and, like him more and so your me? energy is in his direction and so <laughs> that means right so like there, there could be this extreme but i th- i think there's a there's a healthy way of making meaning out of our experiences because that's what elevates us from the mundane is uh, much why you do your work uh, alex why you went on the journey you did because you're trying to make we're we're all trying to make meaning out of what is just the the routine the monotonous of our life and i think a butterfly flying past this this gentleman who needed um, affirmation and confirmation of um, him doing this beautiful work for his partner um, was enough to show that um, he's going to be okay and she's okay alex what what would you say is the meaning of your life or what is the meaning you've created for your life at this point, I'm sure our answers will change as we age. Okay, I'll share something with you. Okay. So, a month before my dad passed away, I was asleep and I had a dream. I was like sort of asleep. It was like a meditation that went into a sleep. But this like dream came to me. And I remember normally my dreams have like, you know, there's things going on. Very mm-hmm. rarely am I like watching a scene and never am I like teleporting in a dream. So this was like a very a first. And I remember I like just appeared in this room. And it was this darker room with wood paneled walls and green carpet. It felt almost like a lodge or a club. And there were like two armchairs in the back of the room. And there was a a younger woman speaking to an old man. And she was like asking him questions or interviewing him or something like that. And I'm standing in the back of the room. Present day me is standing in the back of the room. And I'm like looking at these two people. And I'm looking at the old man. And he looked familiar and I look closer and for some reason in the stream, I'm like, I have this realization. That's me old. Mm. That's like 80 year old me. And I'm like, whoa. But for some reason, this dream, I'm like, don't say anything. Just watch. <laughs> so I'm like standing in the back, just like spying on like future me. So I'm just like listening. And I, and I, I enter mid conversation for them. Mm. And the woman asks him a question and she goes, you know, after everything you've been through, have you figured out the meaning of life? Hmm. And like, you know, present me in the back is like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> like, I'm excited. And old me starts laughing like an old man, like, mm-hmm. oh, ha, ha, ha. like old man laugh, you know? And, you know, the woman goes, what's so funny? And he goes, well, the answer is heartbreaking and tragic mm. yet beautiful. She's like, what do you, what do you mean? And he goes, well, the tragic part is that I've learned there is no meaning of life. And the beautiful part is that you get to make the meaning yourself. You get to choose the meaning. 
So the woman goes, and I'm like, you know, present me standing back. I'm like, this is getting crazy. <laughs> this is like, what, what did I stumble into? And the woman asks, you know, the old man, she goes, well, what, what meaning have you chosen? And he goes, well, I've chosen three things. And remember, this is a month before my dad passes. He goes, I've, I've chosen three things. The first one is to experience. To experience all the beauty of the world, all the wisdom, to feel and experience all the emotions, you know, the pleasurable ones, the hurtful ones, the suffering, really to experience what, whether you believe in God or the universe, the bounty that this life has. That's experience. And the second one is to create, whether it's creating beautiful art, creating a family, creating relationships with people you work with, creating something you love. Creation is like one of the most beautiful things you can do. And the woman goes, well, what's, what's the third one? And the old man goes, letting go. And I remember like present me in the dream, like gasping because I was, you know, struggling so much. Kevin, this is right when we first started working together the month before my dad passed. And I remember like gasping in the back of the room and the old man with like this complete peace and acceptance and appreciation goes, if you don't learn this third one, the first two don't work. Mm. Wow. You have to learn to appreciate the act of letting go. And then literally the dream goes blank and I wake up. Like there was no like, wow. there was no response. Just like I just woke up and I like sat up straight. And I, and almost never do I remember a dream vividly. Wow. Like I remember how that room smelled in the dream. Like it was crazy. That's powerful. And... Yeah, a few weeks later, I had to learn, like, mm -hmm. how to let go. Wow. Mm. And the first two worked because you were able to create new relationships and experience that loss and be there with your dad in that time. I saw that firsthand because of the process of letting Thank go. You. Yeah, seriously. Guys, uh, I think we'll end there. It's really special. Maybe we'll... We'll do a part two. Um, I'd love that. Yeah, I'd love that too. Um, so thank you both. Thank you, man. I love you both. Love you too. And bye-bye, um, everybody.